we are going to start a series on the greatest sequel of all time. No, not The Empire Strikes Back, although we are going to see sequels get a bad rap, you know, um, because it's so hard to live up to a great original. Uh, but this one is it's so good, and it, to me, it's the best of all time. And I'm talking about the book of Acts. You might not realize the book of Acts is a sequel, but it absolutely is. Uh, Luke and Acts, or part one and two, it's almost the same book. For some reason, they put John in between them in the order of our Bible. I don't know why. That's confusing. Um, but it is, uh, it's part two of, of the book of Luke, really. And it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, it was written by Luke, who was a doctor. He's called the beloved physician, so he must have had great bedside manner. 30 to 40 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. Um, that means Luke was not an eyewitness to the story of Jesus. He, he's often called a historian because he went back and, and you know, he, he interviewed all kinds of people and he, he put the story together. I think of him more, of, uh, more as like a, an investigative reporter, you know, coming and, and getting all these interviews and telling, you know, the story behind the story. Because at the time, you had the, story, you had the, the, the biography of Jesus by, by Mark, the book of Mark. And that's a short book, and it's just like pow, 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 like one miracle after another. It's like a Michael Bay movie, you know. It's just like <laughs> explosions the whole time. Um, and uh, and there, there was so much more to say, and so Luke was able to uncover so many more things. And it's a, it's a book of, of like literary depth and deep themes and, and a powerful thing. But even better, it's the only one of the Gospels that has a sequel that goes on to tell what happened after. Um, it's uh, uh, often called the Acts of the Apostles. And that would, that would have been a common way to, to, to uh, a common kind of name for a biography. Like you might have the life of Benjamin Franklin or, you know, the Acts of Ethan Hollip. That would be an interesting book right there, would it not? Keep trying to tell him he needs to write an Acts of Ethan Hollip book, but maybe one day he'll take me up on that. But, uh, right? Because you guys know. Anyway, the guy got stories. Um, it's the, I, I think it's kind of a misnomer, however, because it's not really the Acts of the Apostles. And the Apostles in general uh, are, are in the first, you know, few books, and then Peter kind of, or a few chapters, then Peter kind of takes center stage for a while, and then Paul um, is the subject of, like, the whole second half. But... It's not really about any of those guys. And if you think of Acts as a sequel to Luke, it makes a little more sense. Because Jesus is clearly the hero of the book of Luke. And the thing is, Jesus is also the hero of the book of Acts. It doesn't change. Except he's not in the flesh very often, only in the very beginning. And after that, his words and his spirit dominate the book. This is not the Acts of the Apostles. It's probably better called, as, as other scholars have said, it's probably better called the Acts of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And it's a powerful book. And so we're going to spend some time just preaching through this book. We're going to take our time uh, because it's, it's an incredible, uh, incredible story. It was written to a man named Theophilus. Who is Theophilus, you ask? Ah, let me tell you. We don't have any idea. Um, he, uh, some have suggested that maybe, because his, his name means lover of God, and so maybe it was like he's writing to all people who love God, so maybe he was many people, 
Eh, probably not. Um, some have suggested, that I like this one, this is a kind of a cool one, that he might have been Paul's lawyer, which is fascinating because there's so many legal cases in Luke and Acts. And so maybe Luke was like gathering all this testimony for Paul's, you know, big trial in Rome that we don't even get to witness. Maybe that's what it was. To me, that's fascinating. Um, but it's most likely he was just a wealthy patron. He's a wealthy man who was a believer in Jesus, and he, he commissioned Luke to go and to travel and to write and to gather stories. It would have been a very expensive venture. You know, you can't just open up a Word document and submit it to Amazon, you know, for, <laughs> for self-publication. Scrolls were expensive and ink and all of these things, not to mention travel. But whatever the case, uh, he wrote, uh, Luke wrote this book to this man uh, for many, many others to understand the founding of this thing called the Christian faith, which was already starting to spread through the empire like wildfire. How did we go from this boy in Nazareth to like this thing that was turning the empire on its head, going back to the origins of Jesus and the origin of the church? And I think this is a really good time for us to also go back to the origins of the church. And it's, it's so helpful to go back and be refreshed by the founding. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I get, a little bit of, I get a little bit disheartened when I see another church scandal. Do you guys feel that way? I mean, there's another couple more that came out this week, and you just feel like, oh, like another, somebody else getting caught up in this or that, and then blowing up, ruining people's lives, and you're like, ah, and so many people look at that and go, this can't be real, I want to walk away, and I, I actually understand it at some level, you know, and it's disheartening, and it's really helpful at times when this kind of stuff is happening to be able to go back to the beginning and say, wait a minute, who are we again? Wait, who are we? And to go back to the founding, because the Holy Spirit breathed life into his church. And we need to go back and remember that, to remember our heritage. Who are we? This is the founding document of our faith. So we're going to go back and we're just going to take our time as we journey through this book and rediscover what it means to be followers of Jesus, what it means corporately to be his church, his representation. Are you guys down with that? I mean, we're going to do it whether or not you are, so... But I hope you're down with that because there are so many wonderful, exciting stories in this book. The book begins with Jesus, the Messiah, in the flesh after he's been crucified and resurrected. But not many people know that he's, he's been resurrected. He's appeared to various people um, over the weeks. Uh, but he's spent a lot of time uh, with his disciples. Now, people think that all of the, the, the tension has died down with this rebel Messiah as they thought of him, you know. And, and, uh, and a lot of people in Jerusalem are still totally confused because you're like, well, I thought he was going to be, and then you killed him. And, well, that's disappointing. I guess that's over. But then suddenly people are whispering that he's back to life. What do you do with that? Like, really? Like, uh. And so it's creating more tension and, and more people scratching their heads. But he appeared to his disciples and proceeded to hang out with them and give them a whole amazing like uh, time just with him where he is opening up uh, uh, all their understanding. We're, this is where we begin. He's spending time with them. Acts 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach 
until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. This is a seminar I would love to have attended. <laughs> Jesus talked about the kingdom of God all throughout his earthly ministry, uh, and it was like his, main, his primary subject. It's something that we talk about a lot here because we think we need to major on this because Jesus did, right? So he talked all about that, telling parables and telling stories for years, and now he's come back in the flesh for one final push for them to understand what happened. While he was staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, I'm not sure what they meant by this. It's, it's possible they were echoing the language of the prophets, because sometimes the prophets talked about the kingdom of God in terms of the restoration of Israel. So it's possible they were just echoing that language, but it's also possible that some of them still didn't quite get it, that they still thought with this sort of nationalistic identity, they still thought that Israel equaled the kingdom of God, like as if it was rooted in genetics or marks on the flesh and not in Jesus himself. Either way, let's watch how Jesus responds here, because he's, he's not going to directly answer the question, uh, but instead he's going to give the frame for their mission, which is also the frame for the entire book of Acts, okay? Check this out. I, I stole this from Tim Mackey. Um, this was super cool. It kind of blew my mind when, when, I, when I read it. He says this, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So heaven is about to touch earth in a really powerful way, right? God's kingdom is about to come in force, and it's, it, it's about to get real, you know? And, and that's what this whole book is about. It's telling that story. Um, his spirit is going to come and empower them to take the news of the kingdom first locally to Jerusalem, okay? Now the first about eight chapters are about what happens when the Holy Spirit's poured out in Jerusalem. And then it's going to go to Judea. And the next several chapters are about what happens in Judea and Samaria, the surrounding regions. And then it's going to go all over the world as Paul takes it throughout the empire. That becomes almost like a table of contents to the book of Acts and a, a, a sort of dedication that's, it's like a prologue right there. So that's what we get, and it's, 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 about, to, it's about to begin. Now, we're not going to read through all of uh, the rest of the chapter. We're going to do a couple things this morning after giving some of this background, um, and we're going to kind of skim uh, and, and get to Acts 2 and talk about some of that. Um, so here's what happens the rest of Acts chapter 1. I encourage you to read it. It's awesome. Uh, the... Uh, uh, they all go to Jerusalem and wait, just like Jesus said. In fact, they end up going to that same place where they had the Last Supper, where Jesus washed all their feet and where, where Judas, you know, betrayed him, took the bread and left. It was this, this scene of great importance. And, and they all go there in Jerusalem, the upper room. But it's not just them. There's 120 people. So I hope they had air conditioning. 
They're all there. So you have the 12, what was the 11, but they also uh, uh, installed Matthias in Judas's place. So that's another thing that happened in this chapter. But all these people are there, and they're praying. Now, who was it? It would have certainly been the 12 apostles, right? It mentions the women. So you had like Mary and Martha of Bethany. Uh, Mary Magdalene certainly would have been there. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Lots of Marys. There's tons of Marys all around there. Um, uh, you, you probably had the, the women who were funding his ministry as well. You had lots of other disciples. Remember, he talks a lot about the 12 and also the 70. Like you had many others who were following him. Now, he did appear to some others throughout the region, uh, but primarily this is the assembled gathering of believers in Jesus Christ. The whole church is pretty much in this room, okay? This is just kind of cool to think about. I think about what it meant to be a Christian. It wasn't even like a separate religion. It was looked on as a subset of Judaism that focused, is believed in all the, the Jewish scriptures, right? But focused specifically and, and said, well, our, our Messiah, we believe, has come and he was Jesus who was crucified and raised from the dead, okay? That's it. It's a very, like, it's a small, it's looked at as a very small group, a small subset. So in the middle of that, while they're waiting in Jerusalem, uh, uh, they're, you know, they're probably a little scared because you're coming back to, you know, where they just grabbed your teacher and killed them and everybody ran off like they know they're hunted but they're also still so giddy because man they saw the holes in his wrists right like they know so they know it's real and they're there and they're waiting for what is this going to mean the holy spirit's going to come i have no idea <laughs> no idea but we're going to wait and they're praying and uh, and they're excited now outside outside that open window the city of Jerusalem begins to fill for another feast day. And at feast time, things always got tense. You'd have zealots who were banding together. You'd have the religious authorities who were scheming. You'd have the Romans, you know, <laughs> scared of a revolt again. Like this kind of stuff happened all the time. And they, they didn't like religious fanatics, the Romans. They, they had even worked together, remember, with the Pharisees to have Jesus killed. And their mindset was this. If, if, we, if we kill the shepherd, the sheep are going to scatter, you know? And we got that, except now all of a sudden things are tense again because there's whispers of this messianic zombie. And like, you know, what do you do about this? There's always something. So it's a tense environment, right? Um, and it's only been like about seven weeks since Jesus was, was killed on the cross. So in that setting, okay, this inciting incident happens. An inciting incident in like literary theory is like the moment where everything changes, there's no going back, you know, there's no going back. In the book of Luke, it's probably when Jesus was, was baptized. It's the beginning of his public ministry, man. Everybody saw this, there's no going back. And in the book of, in, in the rest of the New Testament, it's this moment right here. Acts chapter 2. We were all together, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What in the world is going on? This is a very strange 
thing. I always like to look at what, uh, uh, you know, artists throughout the centuries have made of a scene like this. So let's, we have a couple of paintings here from like the 1500s and stuff. Here's one. This is interesting. Like, what are you going to, you know, in this one, they put the dove up there. It's like a clue for all of us, right? The dove, the Holy Spirit. And it's got, you know, kind of a map going down to each one of the, the tongues. It's like, okay, that's interesting. Uh, here's do another one. Um, uh, this one, it's, it, this is like, I don't know what's going on, but there's like waves going down from the dove. Like it's electricity kind of, you know, like zapping everybody. Who knows? I don't know. The third one, though, is my favorite. Now, you guys might not be able to see this, but it's, a, it's an awesome painting. But the, the, the flames remind me of goldfish. It looks like goldfish just like swimming down toward them, you know. <laughs> I don't blame the artist at all. Like how in the world do you translate what's written here to a painting? I have no idea. I think probably looked at tongues of fire. I have no idea. Let's just paint goldfish. That's close enough, right? But... It's, it's fascinating to me. This is a weird, weird moment. And, and it would have been weird on its own wherever it happened. But things are about to get really strange because uh, outside, <laughs> the city is full. Remember, it's, it's feast time. The, the whole world, it seems, has come to Jerusalem. So outside of this window, there is, the city is jam-packed. Um, <sighs> Let's look at this map here. Here's a map of all the places that are about to be mentioned. Um, you see they're all over the Roman Empire, all those places listed. And the yellow dots represent places where historians have found evidence of Jewish synagogues. Now this is fascinating. Right, here's, here's what happened, okay? Remember 600 years earlier, uh, the, the kingdom of, of Judah and Jerusalem had been just utterly wiped out by Nebuchadnezzar. And what happened is he didn't just like kill everybody. He took exiles and he just like deported them all over, all over his empire. Many of them went to the city of Babylon, but others went to other places. Now what would normally happen in these kinds of situations, and did with the northern kingdom actually, is that when people are deported, they completely lose who they are. They end up, you know, just intermixing uh, culturally, religiously, all, all that with other people and, and their race is forgotten. But there were many of them from, from the southern kingdom of Judah and from Jerusalem who somehow held on to their cultural distinctives. They remembered who they were. And they, they couldn't travel to Jerusalem, to the temple, because that was a long way away, and there, there was no temple anymore that had been destroyed. So they did the best they could. You know what they did? They built places where they could come and worship on the Sabbath and where they could read the scrolls, read the Torah, if they had a copy of the Torah, um, or, or the, the prophets. They could come when they would sing the Psalms of David, and where a rabbi could get up and explain what he was reading from the Torah. What does that sound like? Sound a little bit like what we're doing right here? Synagogues were the forerunners to our churches, and they only were born out of necessity because people were so far away from their homeland. So somehow, for 600 years, this people group survives in pockets all around the empire. Now, one of the things that would happen uh, is that once a year, people would be encouraged to come home, to come for a pilgrimage feast to one of the three major feasts, okay? There were, there were three of them that you could choose from. Not everybody did this, obviously, but um, you could go to uh, the Feast of, of Tabernacles in the fall. You could go to Passover in the spring, or you could go uh, to uh, the Feast of Pentecost, which happened seven weeks after Passover. 
So once a year, you'd have a whole flood of people from around the empire that gather into Jerusalem. And the city, you guys, would just swell. Not a little bit. Like there would be hundreds of thousands of visitors into an already small city. The, the, the city of Jerusalem would like quadruple in size during feast time. I was thinking about what that would look like for Junction City. Imagine if 25,000 people descended on, descended on Junction City. Where would they all stay? Not the guest house inn. <laughs> they would be staying in your front yard or on your sofa or in your bathtub. They would be staying all over the place. Any park, I mean, there'd be any place you can throw sleeping bags, they'd be staying. Now, that might sound claustrophobic to you. It does to me. This does not sound fun at all. But um, the, it was also an air of celebration. Like, this was a feast. Remember, the feasts weren't just about ceremony. Like, they were feasts. You, you eat good food. You drink good drink. You sing songs. You hang out. This was like, a, you know, an environment that was just electric. Now, all of that is going on outside, um, outside from where they're praying. And in the middle of all of that, the, the Holy Spirit falls and, 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 and things go crazy. Now, now, check this out. Now it's about to spill over from the upper room into the city. Look at this. There were dwelling in Jerusalem, just like I'm saying, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound... The multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own language? I'm not going to read all the people, but you can see there's a lot of them. My wife was trying to interpret all these things this morning. I felt bad for her. They're all coming from all of those places. Um, Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. I want you to think about this. These people have their own culture. They've been raised with a totally different culture, totally different dress. They might speak Greek or Aramaic to be able to communicate with other people, but that's not their language. They, they have their own language. They have their own way of speaking, their own way of being. Imagine you're from a little island just south of Italy. When it's just basically you have one village of maybe four or 5,000 people. Nobody else really hardly knows you exist. Certainly people don't know your own language. And you come down for your first feast day. And you walk by this house and suddenly this crazy person runs out and is grabbing you by the lapels and going, Hey, hey, let me tell you all about Jesus Christ. He died and he just rose again. All these things. And you're like, how do you know my language? Literally nobody knows my language. I hardly know my language. And this is happening with different people all around you. This is not normal. <laughs> and this is sure to cause a ruckus. And it did. So, what is happening here? Let me explain. No, there's too much. Let me sum up. Some of you guys got that reference. First, let's talk about the gift itself. This, of course, is a favorite passage. This is the favorite you know, uh, a chapter for many who are raised in charismatic or Pentecostal or Assembly of God uh, types of environments. Uh, probably that's true for many of you. Um, it's, it's a clear miracle. It's the first time the Holy Spirit takes center stage, filling people, giving them a, a special supernatural gift, right? And this often leads directly into a discussion of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But we're not going to do that this morning because we don't have time. 
we'll, we'll touch on a lot of these things as we move forward. But instead of, of talking about the gift of tongues or different kind of tongues and what are, what are the variations in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, there's so much to say. Instead of that, I want us to focus this morning on why the gift came in the first place. Here's what Peter quotes to them. Because Peter stands up. People first say, are they all drunk? And Peter's like, dude, like drunk people do not know languages they should not. They, drunk people think they know languages they should not, but they do not. This is, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning, no. And he tells them this. He, he says, in the last days, he quotes the book of Joel, right? The, the prophet Joel said, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The pouring out of God's Spirit was going to happen for the purpose of opening the door of salvation, which it did that day. 3,000 people responded to Peter's sermon. They, they repented, they believed, and were baptized. That day, the church grows 30 times its size. In one day, God pours His Spirit out to, to people for the advancement of his kingdom. In other words, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, you guys, are for showing the love and care and the grace of God. And that's what God's doing in this scene. He's pouring out his spirit in order to throw open the gates of the kingdom and say, y'all come. Contrast that with the way we often talk about the Holy Spirit today in our cultural environment. I, I think we think of it in such individual terms, like, what gift do you have? And it reminds me of something, it reminds me of another type of discussion. Can I, can I rant for a second? Is that okay? Thank you, John. John says I can rant. Personality profiles. I actually kind of like them. I think they're fun. I think they're super interesting to talk about. Uh, but, you know, sometimes it gets a little out of hand, you know? Like, we've got, we've got futuristic INTP choleric golden retrievers who are for us with a five wing, with a love language of phys physical touch. Like, that's a lot, right? You know, <laughs> it's kind of interesting, but what happens when you put the gifts of the Holy Spirit in that same kind of discussion? I think it's a little weird. You know, what happens when you have your six-wing seven ESFJ lion with the strength of adaptability and the love language of quality time? And what if that guy has the gifts of the, the, the prophecy and interpretation of tongues? It all goes in the same box. And the realms are not supposed to go there. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, it's so individualistic and self-aggrandizing. I don't think that's... The gifts of the Holy Spirit are not descriptors for a Facebook profile. Are you with me? Like, that's not the point, right? They're not merit badges, like spiritual merit badges. Now I can be trusted because I have the gift of ding, ding, ding. No, no. That's not what's going on. That's not what they are. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are for the purposes of pouring out to other people. In other words, it's like, giving a, it's like God giving you a, a wrapped present. He doesn't want you actually to unwrap that in these cases. He's like, no, no, give it away. It's like the gift of healing. Oh, good, I got the gift of healing. Look at me. Okay? There's this great part in Chronicles of Narnia where 
Aslan, or Father Christmas actually, gives uh, the, the kids all different gifts. This was not in my sermon notes. I just, I have to go to Narnia sometimes. <laughs> Sue me. Uh, and he's, he gives Lucy a cordial where one drop will heal like, you know, any wound. Be very handy, actually. Um, and, and after the big battle, you know, all these people are hurt and she's, ooh. And Aslan has to tell her, Lucy, Lucy, go. Lucy, don't, don't worry about your brother. You go, you go. Give away what you have, Lucy. You've got the cordial, go. And I think that's what we need to hear sometimes. In other words, guys, it's not about you. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are not about you. They're not about me. Now, this is exactly what the church in Acts would have to learn over and over again. It's the issue they would face, except they faced it on a different level. They faced it on a nationalistic level. Because they said it's all, they thought it's all about us. They want to put the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God completely in their, in, in their box. And that box was the kingdom of Israel. And then it all goes right in here. And the Holy Spirit now is being poured out internationally. And I think that made people very uncomfortable. In fact, the whole book of Acts, people are going to be wrestling with this. And as if he's telling them over and over, guys, it's actually not about you. I know it started with you, but it's not about you. And that's what he would say to us. Maybe some of us deal with the nationalistic thing as well, because that's still a thing that people deal with in all different countries, tying the kingdom of God in an unhealthy way to their, their own country. But more than that, I think we just swim in an individualistic society where we worship the God of me all the time. So even the amazing things the Holy Spirit does, we want to put somehow in our column. And it's not about us. It's not about us. It never was about us. It's about all. It's about throwing open that gate to all men and women of every tribe and nation, every, every tongue, every ethnic class, all of those. He wants all. There's one more thing. The fire. What's going on with the fire? That's weird, isn't it? There are several times in the Old Testament where the fire of God rests, you know, like comes down and rests. One of them, for example, would be the burning bush, right? The fire of God just kind of rests and the descending of the, the flames on Mount Sinai or the fire of the tabernacle that consumed the offering Aaron had placed or in each of these cases, the fire of God represents heaven coming to earth. God himself on a mission. God telling them, this is my presence. It goes in this place. Think of the pillar of fire that led the children of Israel, which we sang about today. Led them through the desert, resting over them, indicating his presence. And now, what do we have in this scene? We have tongues of fire. Where are they? Where are they resting? Where are they resting? Over each one. They're resting over each one. Do you see the implication? The presence of God is no longer confined to a temple or to a holy prophet or any religious leader. The presence of God has been given to God's people. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are a mobile temple. Do you know what that means? Guys, growing up, the only time I ever heard anyone say that is when somebody wanted to get a tattoo. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's so much bigger than physical marks and things that people jump on. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. What in the world? If, if you have given your allegiance to Jesus, it means he lives in you. You are a mobile temple. Your life, whether you're taking care of small children all day or taking care of cars or remodeling bathrooms or performing surgeries, you bring God himself with you to those places. That is no small thing. And these people in the early chapters of Acts, you guys, they understood this. They understood this in a profound way. And here's how I know, because they started acting just like Jesus. They started acting just like him. Like, they start preaching the gospel to everyone in Jerusalem. They start showing radical love to the stranger and the outcast and the widow. They start laying on hands on the sick and seeing them healed. They, they see signs and wonders, and they stand before wicked leaders with boldness and joy, not giving any care whatsoever about their own safety or even their own personal loss of freedom. They acted just like Jesus because they carried his spirit with, within them. And that's, that's why the religious leaders panic so much. You know why? They, they really thought that killing Jesus would kill the movement, but it didn't happen. He was God, and then suddenly he was back. He was over there. I just killed him, but he's over there. He looks just like a woman from Philippi selling purple cloth, but he's right there. Oh, no, no, he's over there. He looks just like an Ethiopian eunuch, but he's right Oh, no, no, he's over there. He was, looks just like this blind, lame beggar. Exactly like him, actually, but he's not blind and lame. We're begging him. What is going on? He's everywhere. How do we stop this? He's everywhere. You know what? He's here, too. He's wearing glasses, wearing a green polo. He works at DHS. He's my dear friend, Doug. He looks like Doug, but he's Jesus. Right? He's right here. Yeah, looks just like, just like a dance instructor I know. Just, it's crazy, but the Holy Spirit pours out. You guys, Jesus rests in the spirit of Christ. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. You're a mobile temple. Everywhere you go and the things you do, you carry him. And I've been so convicted of how often I forget that about myself. I've been so convicted as I'm preparing this message of like, oh, I totally forget. And sometimes I'm just like, you know what, I got this. And I just forget that I'm carrying the spirit of Jesus in me. May we not forget. May we remember. This is why we're going back to the beginning. We got to remember. We carry the Holy Spirit in us. And he changes everything. And when we allow him to breathe and move and work in us, everything changes the places that have no hope. Some of you guys are in places when you're looking and go, I don't have hope right now. Yeah, yeah, I've been there. I've been there quite recently, actually. But you know, he has hope. He has hope to spare. He is God. He's the Holy Spirit. He's God. He has hope to spare. You don't have joy? Guess what? You're not going to be able to manufacture that. But he's got it. You have the power to heal? No. But he does. You have the power to heal hearts? No. But he does. What happens when we try to just roll without him? We end up spinning our wheels with our own strength and making a bigger mess than we ever had before. This is the message as I see it. He is in you. 
This story is not about you, but it involves you. It involves each one of us. Thanks be to God, we get to be a part of this story. You know what's amazing to me? Late in the book of Acts, Luke has a subtle shift in his language. The entire book, he's writing in the third person. And suddenly, on the trip to Macedonia, he switches to first person. You know the implication here? He stepped into the story, you guys. He joined Paul on his journey and became an eyewitness. And this is our privilege. We read all about the Jesus movement, and then we get to step in and join it. We get to join with what Jesus is doing personally. This is the birth of the church, friends. This is the book of Acts. It's not about you, but it involves you. It's not about us, but it involves us. It's about Jesus working in and through all of us by the power of the Holy Spirit. What do you say? You in? Are you in? Are you really? Let's stand together.